you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 18 all the way to 23 today. Uh, So uh, you get your Bibles there. If you're new here today, welcome here. My name is Dan, and you're joining us in the middle of our series on 1 Peter, and uh, we're looking at 1 Peter in the theme of uh, developing a faith that's resilient or in durable in the face of any kind of trial that you've uh, faced. So you've picked a great Sunday to join us because we're talking about something that is extremely hard to talk about today. We are talking about servants and masters today, uh, but I believe that God has something for us in his word today. So if you have your Bible in hand, I invite you to turn to the passage. Uh, If you're not sure where to find it, it's uh, at the back of your Bible, and if you do not have a Bible, it will be on the screen, or if you would like your very own Bible, the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you are there for you to pick as your own to take home for you today. So, let's read the word this morning uh, as we go forward. This This is the reading of God's word. It begins with this, servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the ones who are unjust. For this is a gracious thing when you are mindful of God and endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you have sinned and are beaten for it and endure? But if you do good and suffer, if you, let me repeat that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not reveal in return, nor when he suffered, Did he threaten? But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. I want you to highlight that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the reading of God's word. A few things uh, right off the bat. I want to let you know that if you were to summarize the sentence, uh, here's the idea. Here's the big idea. And if you want to take notes, this is probably where you would take notes. If you are ever in a situation where you are suffering for some reason and you can't get out of it, I would encourage you to entrust your rescue with Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that again. If you are suffering and you can't get out of it, Continue to trust Jesus with your rescue. Peter here, and uh, just just so uh, you have a clear outline, Peter outlines three things that a servant is to do when he is suffering. Number one, he is to honor their master, so you can write that as point number one. Point number two, they are to endure suffering, and number three, they are to follow the example of Jesus. That's what uh, we're talking about today, but. Before I get to the actual text, this kind of needs a little bit of preamble. Going on the theme of topics that I rather avoid in church, this might be one of them, and uh, 
sometimes there are problem texts uh, that we run into. And we can either make two mistakes. We can either focus on the, the problem texts so much that we become obsessive about them. And in that case, I would say to you, hey, you know, make sure that you don't get lost in the details, but you remember that Jesus is the main thing, right? The other, uh, the other uh, mistake we can make is we can ignore texts that we don't understand. And what the Bible says about slavery can be one of those issues, and it can be actually seem like an irrelevant topic given where you and I are, are at today. But let me just leave you, give you four reasons why I think it's really important that we discuss and have a good understanding of what the Bible says in terms of servants and masters and slaves and all that that are relevant for today. The first one is this, is that the whole issue of slavery in the Bible can be a red flag for believers. I don't know if you've ever run into an unbeliever before and they've talked about you know, their, their objections to Jesus, but one of them is, is that uh, the Bible... Uh, the Bible promotes and condones slavery. Has anyone actually had run into that argument? Nobody. Okay. We must run in different fields then. The second is, is that it can be a hermeneutical issue. Is that your approach to how you... I, I've actually had friends that have justified uh, different interpretations on various different doctrines based upon the way that they think the Bible handles this one. Okay? Third one is, is that slavery still happens today. So it is a relevant topic for our day and age. And thirdly, it, or fourthly, it can have relevance on your work ethic. So those are the reasons that I think that just like a good, uh, just like we talked about last week where we need to have a good understanding of what the Bible says about God and government, I think it's probably, a good, it's probably good for us to have a good understanding of how God approaches the, the issue of slavery in the Bible. And the reason is, and so the, the problem is, it's just like last week, the, the topic is so vast that it's going to, it would take like a four-week Bible, it really deserves a four-week Bible study of just talking about what does the Bible say, and what do we do about this verse, and the, you know, uh, all this kind of thing, because there is stuff. What am I going to do today is I'm just going to give you a super brief um, uh, 10,000 miles up kind of overview of what the Bible says about this issue so that we can understand the text. So the reason that I'm prefacing you like that is because as I'm talking, you might say, well, what about this issue? Or what about that issue? Or what about this verse? And the, the issue that, and the reason that I'm, I'm bringing that is I haven't forgotten or ignored it. I just want you to get out and have lunch. So are we okay with that? Okay, so first things first, let's uh, talk about uh, what slavery was, okay, in the time of Rome. Slavery in the time of Rome uh, was a little bit different than what you and I typically think of today. So before we get to the details of this passage, let's understand the way that slavery existed in the day that it was written to these specific believers. I say that because... Uh, as, because as you and I read this, I bet most of us, when we read this passage or think about slavery at all, our minds will go to the transatlantic slavery which brought African slaves to Europe. It's a little bit different than that. Slavery in Rome 
included that version of slavery, but it also was much, much more. Slavery covered everything uh, from a human working in conditions to the mine to a slave who would oversee a villa. Some were living in deplorable positions of slaves, and others were in very nice settings. And it wasn't just one race that was enslaved, it was many. Some were overseers of large businesses, others were trained professionals. Believe it or not, others were doctors, lawyers, teachers, skilled artisans. Some slaves were even owned property and slaves on their own, and some even were philosophers. People became slaves for many different reasons in the Roman Empire. Some were born into it. Others were prisoners of war. Still others uh, volunteered to pay off debt. Still others did it voluntarily for Roman citizenship. And so there are, very, there are many estimates uh, that are made about historically about how many people were slaves, but one there are two that I thought were very particular. One is is that the city of Rome had about one third of its entire population was slaves. Okay, there is another estimate that I saw that it was about sixty percent, but it's somewhere in there, one third to sixty. Slaves, you couldn't distinguish a slave from someone who was a free man in the Roman Empire. In fact, if you know your history, you know that slaves look so much like Roman citizens that the Roman Senate once considered a plan to make them wear special clothing so they could be identified at a glance. This idea was rejected because the Senate feared that as soon as slaves saw how many of them were slaves, there would be an attempt to rebel. And it's in that setting that you and I read the book of 1 Peter. And you need to understand that what happens in, as the gospel goes out and Jesus is preached and everyone's like, you need Jesus and you need Jesus and you need Jesus. It is true that Roman uh, people of power, politicians, rich people did come to a faith in Jesus Christ. But it is also true that the vast majority of Christians, since, the va- since a significant number of Romans were slaves, the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians were slaves to begin with. Because the message of Jesus resonated, wouldn't it, right? This is that you, Jesus came and died to set you free from your sin. So that speaks to a people who were enslaved. And so the issue that a lot of Christians would have had during that era is how do we work out the fact that we are free when we are slaves? So you see a lot of discussion about it throughout the entire New Testament. So it's not just 1 Peter that deals with this issue, it's Colossians, it's Ephesians, there are a number of passages that deal with it and they are tied to it. One of the things that we must understand about the Bible is that the Bible is written for us but it's not exactly written to us. And in this case, it's not written to people who live in Three Hills, Alberta in 2024. It's written to people who were uh, suffering. So what does the Bible say about slavery? What does it say? Well, it's my opinion, and and I'm going to give you just a very brief overview of this. 
it really needs a lot more time to develop than I think of it because the Old Testament does make regulations for slaves. But while it does, I'm going to argue that the Bible as a whole, and especially the New Testament, does not think that slavery is a good idea. In fact, I very, I, I'm, I'm a very, I would argue very much that the gospel is in favor of setting people free. You remember what I told you about how you look at an issue in the Bible? Is there's never one issue, there's never one verse that you look at. You look at every verse pertaining to that issue throughout Genesis to Revelation. And you kind of said, okay, you kind of, here's what Genesis says, here's what Exodus says, uh, says, here's what Revelation says, here's all that, and you kind of figure out a way to summarize what every verse says into a sentence or two. And when you do that, when this issue, I think you come up with the idea that Jesus is very much in favor of setting people free. Okay? It all goes back to Exodus chapter 5, verse 21. You know this very this very famous saying, it is, let my people go. Who said that? Moses. Why did Moses say it? Because if you know your story, you know that Joseph was sold as a slave, rises to power, sends his family to Egypt, and over time the people of Israel are enslaved. They are treated poorly and harshly, and God rises up Moses to set the people free. Then moving on, you can actually see this, is that in Exodus, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 21, verse, uh, verse 16, it says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone who is found in possession of him shall be put to death. So even in the Old Testament, the idea of kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery earns you the death penalty. Right? Or if you actually look, uh, going further, I would say that even, even when the Bible does regulate slavery, it kind of says this, and this is the part that trips people up, right? It says, uh, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired hand worker and a sojourner. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You, you shall not rule over them ruthlessly, for I am your God. And so that's the Old Testament. The part that trips people up is the verse that is next. But even in the New Testament, I would argue that the New Testament is all about the idea of setting people free. Because Jesus uses the relationship of master and slave as a metaphor to talk about the relationship between us and sin. Where he talks about the idea that you are sold as a slave to sin. And that Jesus has come to set you free from it. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has proclaimed me, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the who? The captives. Or if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 7, verse 22. For he who was called to the Lord as a bondservant or a slave is the Lord's free man. 
And I would argue that if Jesus came to release us from spiritual slavery, there's no reason why the result can't be physical freedom from slavery. Other, other words, check it out. They're either, either neither. Uh, let's go. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go to here. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-eight. There is either neither Jew or Greek. There is either no slave or free. There's neither is there male or female. For all are what? One in Christ. Okay? What I think you and I need to understand is that because we are spiritually free and because we are spiritually one, that results in something called Christian fellowship, which is more than just cookies and juice after church. The radical fellowship that we share destroys organically the very idea of slavery. You might be very uh, interested to know this uh, story. There's a book in the Bible called Philemon. Philemon is, takes you probably about five minutes to read. It's like a short little letter. And Philemon is really a story between Paul and a slave owner. So what winds up happening is there is a man. Uh, Paul is sharing the gospel and he spreads it to a man uh, named Philemon. Philemon comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Sometime later, one of Philemon's slaves runs away, and lo and behold, by chance, I'm going to say providence, runs into Paul, who then shares the gospel with him. So now Philemon, now the slave and the master, are both believers in Jesus Christ. They prayerfully consider that Onesimus, the slave, has to return to Philemon, and so what Philemon is, is it's a letter written by Paul to say, hey, I need you, why don't you welcome back? And in chapter 1, verse 15, he says this to him. He says, for this is perhaps why he was parted for you for a little while, that he might come back forever, no longer as a what? But more as a beloved brother. You see what happens there? Is that the nature of Jesus Christ uh, makes us one in Christ, and therefore, the relationship between slave and master changes to brother and sister in Jesus Christ. Okay? Fun fact, I don't know if you know this. Okay? Church history tells us that Onesimus then went on to be the bishop of, church, uh, of a church right after this. So you know how there's a generation of the apostles and then there's the next generation of leaders? After him, this man, the man, the slave, become one of the leaders in the church. So it would be a very interesting time to be in church because on one hand, you have this dynamic where both a master and a slave come to church. Like They're both believers in Jesus Christ. And during the week, you have the masters over the, the slave. But at church, you know, the, the slave could actually be the church elder, right? Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah, it would be so weird. Okay. And here's what happens. Here I'm, I'm getting to a point here. Here's what happens. It gets to the point where Paul actually calls it out as evil. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, For there is no sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, or what? Slavers. He names it as a sin. Okay. Particularly kidnapping. Right? Some of your NIV translations will translate it, not in slavers, but uh, slave traders, right? So the idea that you're, you're trafficking human beings, names it like this. 
And eventually what it results in is like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, is that Paul actually encouraged this freedom. He said, were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Okay? So it's this idea that I think very much, uh, and, and really this is a brief kind of like overview of it, I really do think that the Bible does promote the idea of being free, free from sin as master of sin, but also the idea of freedom in general. Okay? So then the question is, going. so that's the setup, right? That's sort of the introduction to the passage we're talking about. So here's the question then. If freedom from slavery was encouraged... Why does our passage ask slaves to obey their masters? Good question, eh? Anyone want to tackle that one? Yeah, I didn't think so. You know, some days uh, you, might, you might sit there and wish, man, I wish I could be a church leader. Today might not be that day. <laughs> okay. Why did Peter ask them to uh, obey their, their masters if the idea, if we've already set up the, the idea is freedom in Christ? Why is that? And I'm going to make the argument, here's my argument for it. It's not that they shouldn't seek to be free. It's that they couldn't seek to be free. Do you understand the difference? It's not that Peter is saying to them, don't seek your freedom. Don't try to get out of it. But what he's talking to is the people who either can't or they are unable to in some way. So I'll give you two illustrations about what I'm talking about. I'll give you a modern one and a biblical one, uh, just for example on this. Like, so the other day I was listening to a church that they had this uh, missionary, missions organization come in, International Justice Mission. And what they do is they go, uh, they go all the way in the world and they, they, they're a bunch of Christian lawyers and activists. And what they do is they, they uh, go into the brothels and collect evidence to, to shut down the brothels and to set the people free. And they share the gospel with them and therefore whatever. They were talking about uh, this, one, this one instance where uh, this person, uh, this, this husband, uh, his wife fell ill and she needed medical treatment or whatever. It was something like five bucks, but he couldn't afford it. So he goes to a lender and says, I need, I need money to pay for it. He says, I'll give you the money, but you've got to work on my catfish farm to pay off your debt. So he says, sure, he does. But the, the issue is, is like, he never really, he never, the, the master or the, the loan guy never really uh, honored that agreement. And so this man and his family were, in, were stuck in a situation where they had to work uh, for generations to get the, for this man. Eventually this man decided I'm going to make a break for it and try to, try to be myself. So he ran from the fields. Slave master caught up to him, and he gave him an option. And he said, what limb do you want, your right or left? And he cut off the right arm and the left leg so that he would never run away again. Okay? Now, here's the question. What do you tell that, if that guy was a believer, what do you tell that guy? What kind of counsel would you give somebody who can't, who has tried to get away but can't. Or if you want a biblical explanation uh, or example of this, do you remember Joseph? 
Someone, someone summarized Joseph for me really quick. Who was that? What's that story about? Nobody. Yeah. So if you know the story, Joseph was sold into slavery for. Uh, he was accused of doing something he didn't wrong. He didn't do that was wrong, and uh, he he get he's he's in he's in prison. And while he's in prison, he meets two people who are associated with the king, and he gives them a dream, and he says he interprets the dream for them. And then at the end of it, he says, when you go back to the king, can you please remember me and help me get out? So he's trying to get out of prison, right? Question, is that wrong or right? It's right, okay? It's right. Nothing wrong with trying to get out. So what happens in the story? Does the, does the, uh, does, I can't remember if it was the cook. Does the cook, what's that? It was the cupbearer. Does the cupbearer remember to mention Joseph? No. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Okay? So there's Joseph, sold into slavery. He tries to get a way out. He can't get a way out. And he's stuck there again. What would you tell Joseph to do after his attempt to break free failed? What would you do? And I bring those, those, those situations up because that's the context of what is being said here in the text. Okay? That's sort of the background of what we are reading here today. It's not that these people shouldn't be free or that he's saying that you can't get free. It's that they are unable to alleviate the unjust pain. And so the question before them is if we can't stop this, what are we to do? What would you do? And that's where I think that the text overlaps for you and I today. Because it is true that, remember, the whole idea of 1 Peter is this idea about how to endure during suffering. How do you do it? And most people, they would say this, if I can, if I can stop whatever is causing the pain, then I'll be fine. But what do you do in a situation where you can't fix the problem? Right? How do you deal with that? How do you... How do you, what counsel do you give? What actions do you take? And so I, I don't know, like the way that I would say this translates to me, I'll give you a couple of examples. Is last year we dealt with a serious issue with James and bullying. Okay? And what I mean by that is not, you know, the, the, the light hearted teasing. I mean, like he was pushed. I mean, rocks were thrown at him, all this kind of thing. And I, you know, we went through all the channels, right? We talked to the teachers. We went all the, all the kind of way. We, we did this, and it was still happening. Uh, I thought about talking to the parents, everything. Everything that we knew how to do to try to alleviate the situation didn't work. How do I counsel James? Should I tell him to hit back? Well, that thought crossed my mind, Right? What do you do if you can't get out? <laughs> Who said that? Tobias, you are awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, you could pray. Like, that's sort of what is, I'm, I'm trying to tell you that that sort of scenario is what is happening here. What if, what if you have a job that you can't get out of? Now, ordinarily, you'd say you quit, right? <laughs> For me, that's what I would have done. If there was a job that I didn't like, I would have quit. But then I realized that in my younger years, I would have had no problem with that. If there's an employer that didn't I like or thought I was 
mistreating me in some way and I couldn't fix the problem, I would just leave. I had no problem sleeping on the couch or in my car, but now I've got a family to take care of. I've got to realize that that's just more of it. Or what do you do if you just can't get out of a bad situation? That is the context in which Peter's advice is giving to him. And he makes three observations. And the, the first is this, is that he tells them to submit, to honor those over us. Okay. So if you want to go, now we're getting into the text today. So if you want to follow along, he says this. Um, for, first observation I'm going to make about the text is this, is that he says, we must honor our, those over us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That word master in the Greek is, has a, uh, can also be translated despot. It implies a dictator, even a tyrant. <clears throat> it means that he is crooked and unjust, and so the command then is to still honor him. And that's really tough for us as Christians, because as Christians... Uh, we rebel against people who act that way in such a situation. But that's, that's weird. Colossians puts it a, a different way. It says, Bondservants, obey them in everything uh, who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That phrase, earthly masters, I want, I want, you, to, I want you to hone in on that in a minute because that's, that's not by accidents. That's not wordy. That implies two things. Number one, that because they're earthly masters, they won't be there forever. But also, two, it also symbolizes the idea that their authority is limited. Their authority over you is limited. Who is, the, who is ultimately our master? Jesus. Jesus. And so what he is saying here is you should obey them in as so far as it does not conflict with your faith. Have you ever had a bad boss? Someone you don't like. Not someone that you don't like, but someone who is actually bad in character. Uh, how would you handle that? Work, I don't know if you, you know this or not, but a good theology of the, of the Bible regarding work is that work was intended to be a blessing, but after the fall, work took on a new dimension. Many people today experience work as anything but a blessing. And that's why people buy lottery tickets because they want to get out of work. Work for them is filled with unwanted drama and disagreements and in stress and unfairness. Workers often feel like they what they are accomplish is taken out of their hands and exploited to the advantage of their employer. They work hard and wonder why their employer seems to be getting more wealthy while they struggle to make ends meet. This kind of thing becomes a burden to a great many in the human race, and that's also true of workers who are Christians. Now, in our day and age, if we had issues against our, our employer, we could do a number of things. You have rights. You might be protected by a union, like if you're a healthcare worker or a teacher. But you might not have that opportunity. You might have other opportunities to work somewhere else. But your economic situation makes it so that quitting is not a possibility for you. You might be stuck in your job where there's no way out. Just like these guys. 
How do you handle it? Well, Peter's advice to you would be to honor him and make sure he he knows that you are the kind of worker that can be trusted and you seek to bless him by his work, even though it may be extreme and difficult. You want a good example of this? I would invite you to look at the person of Daniel. That king that Daniel served was anything but a nice guy. Right? And yet Daniel served to bless him. Number two, <clears throat> he makes the obser- the second observation that I would make is this, is that he tells them to endure the suffering patiently. Listen to what that says in verse 9. It says this, For this is a gracious thing when, when you're mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering. What is Peter trying to remind us of? That when you trust God and when you walk with him and when you obey him and then when someone treats you wrong, here's the key. You patiently endure that wrong treatment. That you don't act out, that you don't take matters in your own sin. You don't say, hey buddy, just wait. I'm going to pay you back someday. Okay? When you do that, you will, when you wait and you endure, you will wait, you will find the favor of God upon you, okay? But this is only if you have no way out. Stop and try to understand this teaching in terms of our modern day experiences. When you and I are at work, we are under a contract. Whether you are a highly paid executive or a hired or a farmhand, you have a contract. It might be as simple as an understanding of your wages or your hours along with the duties you perform, both you and your employer have assumptions about what is required on both parts. The crazy thing is, is that sometimes when people, when those over us act in a bad way, Christians somehow think that all bets are off and we can act in an evil way. And so what happens is we give ourselves to constantly complaining and mean-mouthing Uh, our bosses behind their back, or attempting to sabotage them as much as we can. But I just want you to know that that is actually not pleasing to God. Now I should mention that, I should make what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you are being treated in an abusive way, that God is asking you just to sit there and take it. Not in your life. I think if that's true of you, you need to seek help. Okay? Third observation is to follow the example of Jesus. It says this, <clears throat> verse 20. For what credit is it if you, when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. The word credit means of good reputation or a reason to receive glory. And what he's saying here is there is no eternal benefit if you suffer as a result of bad conduct. Now, I'm going to make the argument that not all suffering is God's will for you, especially suffering that happens as a result of something that you did that was wrong. Okay? So, for example, okay, let's say that you come to church and that you can't connect with people, that you're lonely, right? 
No one loves me. No one pays attention to me. But at the same time, you're mean to everybody. Okay? Well, 